And welcome to Ford at Earth, the podcast that has a little look at all things environment, nature, climate change, sustainability, and asks, is there anything that you and I can do to help save the planet just a little bit? I'm Emma. I'm Lloyd. And to help us answer that question this week, we have Harvey Tweets from Celtic Reptile and Amphibian. Hi, Harvey. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. I, I am Harvey Tweets and not Tom Whitehurst. For some reason on Zoom, it's got, it must just be Tom to count. <laughs> I did notice that, yeah. Harvey is is one part of the duo of uh, Celtic Reptile and Amphibian. Tom Whitehurst is the other half, right? Do you guys get lumped together quite a lot? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, do we get lumped together? Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, um, it's been great to kind of occupy a niche, um, if you want to use that ecological term, um, within sort of the environmental community and sort of ecology and things. But we're trying to start to break that mould a bit now. Um, we're both doing... I mean, some projects we're doing together, we're both doing projects, though, that are kind of separate and things. So some stuff that's not even ecology related. So we now, for some reason, manage a bar through one thing or another. So hold up. We've got, so we've got, we've got lots of different things. Where, yeah. The first thing I did was ban plastic. So um, good. Good. So, yeah, we've. Um, yeah. I should anyway, sort of point out for the listeners as well. Like you, you guys do incredible stuff. But what's even more incredible is the fact you're, you're both 18, right? Yeah, so both 18. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think what really motivates both of us is to, is, is the sense of urgency. Mm. You know, we are literally in a crisis. We are in a, yeah. a warlike crisis, if you want to be even more extreme. We do. And talking to some of the sort of old boy ecologists, um, some great heroes and people who we work with on a daily basis, they had one thing in common. Um, which was time. Mm. They had the time to do master's degrees, do PhDs, to go to Malaysia, Namibia, to study ecosystems there, come back to Britain with loads of ideas. Um, the one thing that my generation does not have, and, and really actually our generation, is time. We don't have time. But I think the, the most exciting thing of all is the fact that we do have, from my perspective, a lot of the answers to some of these incredibly scary and big problems. So I think it's about, you know, getting everyone to um, both embark on this journey of, um, of of basically trying to save humanity um, and also um, inspire just as many different people and especially the younger generation to take a stake within this, within this crisis. That's fantastic and so eloquent and very, very well put. But can I just circle back to the bit where you said about you own a bar? <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to, I think that you're going to make me feel a bit inadequate at this podcast. I'm a decade older than you and you're such an overachiever. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. How do you, how are you managing a bar? What's, what's happened there? I mean, we will talk about your conservation work, but first of all. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Where's but, our invite but, but, as but well? What was this about a bar? <laughs> Basically, um, we literally just up the road from where I am. Um, my nan and grand, my family are actually well known within the town because my dad was a professional cricketer once upon a time, played for Derby and um, my whole family are, the, the tweetses, the whole family are um, every sort of male tweets 
has been a cricketer for like almost as far back as people can remember. Oh, wow. I'm the first male tweets to have not ever taken up cricket. Cricket? And no, lizards, mate. That's where it's at. <laughs> but my sister, who is three years younger, so the second sort of child in our, our family, she is the youngest female cricketer, um, like I think so in the region. And she's also the first cricketer to ever play for Highfield, which is the cricket, cricket club. Um, ever in the whole 175 hey, years, so we've broken a massive, you know, win for women. Uh, and but not, it's not only a cricket club; it's also a function, a party space, and just through one thing or another, me and Tom do the managing of that as well. So we manage <laughs> events and and all sorts, and kind of have to be bouncers as well, which is kind of hilarious. Wow. And, um, and yeah, so we do that. So in the day we breed lizards, and at night we are bombers. So it's kind of a <laughs> A crazy, uh, a crazy thing. So. But in this day and age, everyone is seven different things. So I like it. I like that you've also brought your kind of eco-conscience to both roles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the great thing about bars, and I, and I'll, and I, you know, not just alcohol, apart from the alcohol. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The great thing about working as a barman, and I'll tell this to anyone who's going into ecology, is you just sense of being able to talk to people. Um, I think within ecology, we have. People think that the priority needs to be on ecological knowledge, biological knowledge, scientific knowledge. But actually, the most important thing is, can you talk to people? You know, that is, and I mean, that's fundamental in many jobs, but I think we forget that in ecology and, and in science and things. So working in a bar is, it just creates a great skill set for anyone. So it's the first thing I recommend to anyone who, if they're ever struggling with being able to talk to people, go Fantastic. and get a job in a bar. Are you so, handing yeah. out jobs? Yeah. <laughs> Come along, young ecologists. <laughs> do you end every uh, conversation with a patron with, do you want to buy a lizard? <laughs> How do you feel yeah. about pond turtles? I'll get the bell, you know, the last order's bell and be <laughs> yeah. like, Come and get your lizards, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Right, okay, before we dive any further into um, your operation and what you're about, um, we, well, I was about to say we warned you, we didn't really, it was about five minutes before we started recording. Uh, we said that we do a segment called What One Good Thing Have You Done This Week? Um, and I know you've been doing amazing things with reptiles and lizards, but they're not going to count in this instance for this 30 second segment. So, um, should, Emma, should we start with you? Oh, okay. Pressure's on. Um, yeah. my one good thing this week. Get that ball I rolling. I like it. I like it. Chop, chop. No nonsense here. Um, my one good thing this week was I had a smart meter installed, um, Bang. which, you know, really helps us personally connect with our energy usage because it's an absolute nightmare watching it tick up and watching literally the pennies drop away um, makes us feel a lot more responsible for what we're doing, but also really helps, you know, the energy companies better understand energy, you know, demands in real time instead of constantly making predictions um, so they can help basically better manage the grid and produce less wasted energy at times when it's not needed. So tick, Fair. that's mine. Amazing. I'm, I'm guessing you managed to avoid all the company closures that were going on. Yes, that was pretty stressful, actually, wasn't it? We're with Octopus, which I'll happily shout from the rooftops about so we, renewable yeah. energy. And they actually absorbed, I think, was it Bulb? Who, Bulb, one of the other energy green energy suppliers that had a lot of problems um, recently, mm. as has most of the sector. So, no, we, we're still happily with a renewable energy provider that is afloat. Fabulous. Um, shall I go? Yeah, what is, what's yours? So um, everyone who's listened to this podcast is bored out of their skulls and me talking about DIY and building and stuff um, or like my lack, my lack in those things. <laughs> um, but we I seem to have spent a lot of money in Screwfix and B&Q 
But lately, um, we've been going to a local independent timber merchant. Um, I didn't really realise there were that many still around. But uh, Brian found them, and I can't believe we didn't realise they were there before, because they were three streets away from us. Oh, wow. Um, tucked away, like in the middle of some houses, in a little yard. It's amazing. And they, yeah. Funny you should say, yeah, funny you should say that, because ours are independent. Uh, timber yard is exactly that description as well just yeah. like three streets away and tucked in in between yeah. a load of it's houses like that's so weird terraced houses and then just yeah. the big timber yard they wouldn't realize is there unless yeah. you actually stop it's fantastic yeah it's so good because uh, like things don't come pre-packaged or pre-wrapped you can just pick out the type of wood and the shapes you want and they'll cut it down for you then and there and also you're supporting a local retailer it's fantastic love that absolutely love that and it's much easier to haul things home when it's only three streets away yes definitely okay what, what about you harvey what's yours well mine um i haven't necessarily done a little thing uh, but the thing that came came to mind is just a few days ago i was actually um at a place an amazing place with amazing potential called ewhurst park okay and ewhurst park is in, in uh, embarking on a 927 acre um, rewilding restoration biodiversity uh, pro- project, um, basically allowing natural regeneration, which obviously sequesters carbon, and then introducing uh, select herbivores into the into the parkland. Oh, cool. Um, in order to create, you know, habitats for so many different species in the same way that net, net way, um, yeah. was created. Nice. So I was brought on as a consultant to help look at ways in which that can be that can be managed. Um, from my experience of basically managing a project myself and also just my thoughts on habitat and potential and helping divide up the land into what what different sections there could be in terms of regen agriculture, holistic grazing systems, whatever. Um, and basically we came to the conclusion that probably there isn't actually that much land which is good for regen agriculture, which was kind of like, yes, because I would way prefer to see horns and scrub over uh, horseradish. So... Um, <laughs> So, yeah. And the, the motto that I actually came up with is when we were talking about dividing up this 927 acres was horns and scrub need to run, which is kind <laughs> of um, yeah, kind of quite good. So it's kind of more bigger, the better. And from a carbon perspective, we know that when we do rewilding projects like this, they sequester vast amounts of carbon, uh, lock it into not only foliage and trees, but also, most importantly, the soil. Um, so... It's an amazing project and uh, hopefully I shall be involved with that in months, weeks and hopefully even years to come. So, uh, so yeah, offset of it, my carbon footprint. Bloody fantastic, to be honest. You've, you've absolutely smashed it out of the park. Yeah, literally. Screw literally my smart meter. No, that's so cool. We've been recording for about 10 minutes and you just made me feel inadequate about everything I've ever done. So well done. I'm, I'm going to go and have a little climate anxiety cry at the end of this. Um, yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. What an amazing project to be part of as well. I mean, I absolutely, I've not been to NEP. I was planning on going this year, but then, you know, something got in the way, yeah. uh, pandemic. Um, but absolutely loved Isabella Tree's book about it. And it's just fascinating. And that's really, really cool that you get to be part of or help steer a project kind of from the beginning uh, in a similar vein. Oh, so exciting. Yeah. Well, the 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 little the, the, the main reason why I'm doing it is because um Jonathan Spencer, who who from the Forestry Commission said that when he because he steered NEP in the initial stages, he said the best thing about it was just all the wine. It was just like the <laughs> oh, wine hello. and the dinner parties were brilliant. No, jokes aside though, no, the main reason <laughs> hosting why it in a cricket club barn. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, the uh, main reason why I'm doing it is because of um, is because of biodiversity. But but yeah, no, it's really exciting and just amazing people to work with. Fantastic, amazing. Well, anyway, listen. Excellent. We we got you here to talk about Celtic reptile and amphibian. So let's let's give you guys a little bit of attention, shall we? The short of it is that you're kind of a captive breeding program with the aim of helping support amphibian and reptile species that um, we've got here in the UK or we should have here in the UK and we've lost or are, you know suffering from population decline and things like habitat loss and climate change. That's my short elevator pitch. What's the long pitch? What's you know tell us a bit more about what it is that you you two do and why. I suppose what we do, um, or at least what we aim to do, is to become some sort of narrative of, of hope. I think um, in Britain we are seeing and have seen the worst ecological collapse in practically any country, you know, world over, bar a few. And we really don't act like it. You know, if you look at Madagascar, where the vast majority of the forest has been cleared, they're acting like it and they are concerting their action around replanting trees, reintroducing lemur species, etc., etc. And even in some places, pretending to be giant mowers in order to create some cool vegetation patterns. In Britain, we don't act like it at all. Um, and I think in large part, that's due to the fact that we have no wilderness left. We've got no baseline. Um, but also, this a lot of this has happened over a very long time. And... Looking at other countries like New Zealand, Australia, America, you can see this more holistic system of reintroducing species on a, on a much grander, grander level in order to match the awful destruction that there is. And we want to bring that to sort of Britain and we want to bring a sense of reintroduction on a, on a scale which is scientifically based, but at the same time big to our land so that we can help restore it. And we're not necessarily interested in reintroducing to habitat which still exist. We're more interested in reintroducing species to habitat which will exist, rewilding projects and things like that. Because if we can create the incentive to rewild, even if it's in a tiny little small part, um, you know, whereby we can reintroduce species to, to this land, then I think that it'll help garner more, more and more people collaborating in this rewilding vision. Um, rewilding in Britain is becoming a revolution. You know, we are seeing upwards of 1 million acres, Charlie Burrell actually um, calculated. Uh, rewilding Britain, I think their partners uh, with Rewilding Britain, I think it's at about a quarter of a million acres now are in active rewilding. To give you some sense, um, Yellowstone is, is I think, 2.2 million acres. So if Charlie Burrell thinks a million acres, that's almost half of Yellowstone, which for the size of Britain is big. It's half of Northern. Um, and that's that's only the start, considering we've got projects now like Wild East, which want to rewild one fifth of East Anglia. I think we're really starting to gain traction and it has become a revolution. We just need to keep up the pace and actually, in fact, go go a bit quicker so that we can help to restore nature. Because ultimately, when we think about the climate crisis um, and, and all other different crises, whether it's plastic pollution or biodiversity, they are all symptoms of one thing which is human wrought destruction on the natural environment. Let's not, let's not, you know, start to circumvent that. We have practically changed the face of the earth in 97% of all global ecosystems. And I think what rewilding offers for the first time in 200,000 years of human evolution is a chance 
to actively restore rather than destroy. So I think fantastic. We can probably yeah. we can probably make the assumption that you're like pro rewilding, like maybe a bit. <laughs> Maybe, Maybe just a little, little bit. bit. Um, little bit. Uh, no, I think I, I, I echo your thoughts. I think it's incredibly exciting and it's exciting that the, the uptake of rewilding projects is accelerating in the UK. But um, I mean, the term rewilding itself has a few, you know, n- not everyone likes the term rewilding, do they? No, um, I mean, there's, there's <laughs> if you kind of look all around, there is opposition to rewilding. Um, and I think that's natural when we propose such a crazy um narrative which is very very um controversial in some ways um but the first thing that i like to point out is that dewilding isn't non-controversial either so for instance one of the things i've been reading about recently is the draining of the fens so in the uh, 15th and 16th 17th and 18th century it took a while um the fens were actively drained in um cambridge uh, it's Cambridge, Lincolnshire, and is it Cambridge? Just Cambridge and Lincolnshire, I think. One of the biggest culprits is a guy called Cornelius uh, Vermuden, and he it was a Dutch engineer who learned to to basically pump vast amounts of water off the land. And there was uproar by the local community. There was absolute uproar. You know, people who, for literally tens of generations, collected thatch from the reeds for their own homes. People who'd caught waterfowl to sell were going absolutely mental. And and it was basically the whole consensus was do not drain the fence. Mm. But because of human progress, the fence were drained. So, you know, it, it's a case on case basis of whereby, you know, what's happening in Britain now. So when the fence are being drained is now happening in, in the Mekong Delta. So in the Mekong, um, which runs through, uh, I think it's Laos, Cambodia, it goes up into China. So it's through Southeast Asia. Um, Many hydropower dams built by um, Chinese conglomerates have been have been constructed along the banks of the Mekong and um, completely causing absolute havoc with fish stocks. So it's estimated, I think, that I think something like a million people who directly rely on fish protein uh, will be displaced. So time after time, we can we can although we bash rewilding and can bash rewilding a lot. Let's not pretend for one second that dewilding, which is which is the opposite, has ever been good or ever had a consensus. I like that. That's that's the problem with like the shifting baseline syndrome, though, isn't it? Because like you said, at the time when the fens were being drained, we knew as a as community in in the UK, we knew what that nature was, and seeing that being degraded was 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 a problem but whereas like now because of what we've got used to now and what the the state of nature that we have grown up with in the most recent generations is what we see as what nature should be without really taking that second to think actually no maybe it was depleted in the first place and it could be much yeah. much better yeah. i think that's such a big a big hurdle for, for when you're proposing these really big projects which are going to make the landscape look dramatically different and changing that narrative from different to actually historic and better yeah, I think I think that's one great thing to mention, which is that although we look to the past and we look at what processes were happening in the past, we cannot for one second suggest that we can recreate the past. Mm. The past is a foreign country. We are never getting it back, you know, no matter in what way, shape or form or Jurassic Park style project we want. We are never going to get to an age, a halcyon age when man live with nature. And, and that's one thing to mention that's really important is 
there is no single age in, in history where we have lived in, in harmony. Yes, there have been moments of relative bounty where we have lived with some degree of harmony with nature, but the vast majority of times we've destroyed everything. You know, we, we look at Egypt. Egypt was once the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, now a desert. We farmed it to death. It is now gone. So, yeah, I think that um, we've never once you know, lived in a, in a great age uh, and we're never going to recreate the past. However, at the same time, we do have to look at the past because we have to understand that our modern ecology is rooted in processes in the past. So, for instance, Franz Vera's theory of grazing ecology is incredibly important to biodiversity, realising that herbivores in Europe actually control succession and prevent succession in some areas and create woodland pasture and scrub. And, and that made us realise that, wait, there, that's why so many of our species like this habitat. So we do have to look to the past, but at the same time, I've said a million and one times, it's like walking a tightrope. Got to recognise that we can't be the past, but at the same time, we can't also be something wholly different. We've got to be careful and, and straddle that, that, that tightrope. So true. No, it's, I, I really admire the sponge-like nature that you appear to have of just <laughs> facts and information. Um, but I think... Listen, I'm going to go for the cliche, which I'm sure every journalist and media person has ever asked you. And, it, I, and I imagine it's actually probably quite annoying, but I'm going to barrel ahead and do it anyway. You're 18. How does a 17-year-old, uh, like when you and Tom first started, how do you go from being in school and being put in a box where you're just supposed to be focused on exams, break out of that and suddenly go, do you know what? No, I care really passionately about you know, the planet and I've got a plan and this is what I want to do. How? What was your guys' journey from like, I don't know, not going down that traditional route, like you said, of going to university, but trying to make your time count now? Um, uh, It's hard. It's hard to al analyse behaviour, which to me is subconscious. Looking at other colleagues and, and other good friends, I think the difference between me and them was my bloody persistence. <laughs> if anyone has ever worked with me, they know how persistent I can be to the point where it can be annoying. And, you know, I'm even too much for Tom sometimes. I'm just very, very persistent. I called Tom up at like 12 o'clock last night and said, right, we need to get this insulation in. It needs to be this thickness so we, the lizards are kept at this temperature during the winter. And just like Tom's like, it's 12 o'clock, I'm going to bed. So, you know, I, I, I'm very persistent. Um, I think the biggest thing of all is learning that, that we have a say. Every single person has a say, and I know that's incredibly cliche, but we all have the chance to actually do something and make something uh, worthwhile. So I think that's the realisation. Um, and I think the other realisation which goes hand in hand with that is just not taking any shit, is basically to say, you know, if you want to go on a mission, you've got to, you've got to go on a mission. Yes, I'm not saying don't be malleable, don't be open to new ideas, but understand that you can actually make a change. Uh, I, think, I think for me... Um, just being incredibly pragmatic about what I want to do is important and also kind of putting those words into action. If you talk to one of my colleagues, Derek Gow, he'll talk about beware of mystics, actually. And uh, for a while I was like, what the bloody hell is he on about? And what he actually, what he's actually trying to say is that um, mystics are people who talk the talk but can't walk the walk, who basically have this these grand ideas and and, and will convince you that they can... We'll, we'll sell you the world, but actually um, not give you anything. And I think that, um, you know, you've, you've just got to get your head down. I think what me and Tom have realised through 
the tail end of Celtic and, and, and that sort of thing, you know, to the point where we are now, is that with, with the media and that, you can keep all your TV appearances, you can keep all of the social media posts. I'm actually just bothered about getting stuff done. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm just bothered about making stuff work. And um, if you can really convince yourself and be driven on that, then I think that, um, you know, for anyone, it, it just helps, you know, to have that sort of, I don't want to say tunnel vision, but... but a level a, of focus, yeah. Yeah. And by the sound of it, it's, it's really paid off. How how big would you say your, your, your operation is now? Like how many different um, individuals do you have? How many different species are you, are you breeding? So we've we've actually, to be honest, we've actually cut down on the number of species over the year, which is kind of ironic, <laughs> um, just so we can focus on, on a few. For instance, more frogs, we bred about 800 babies. So... That's that's really good. And although they're not being reintroduced, we'd have to get um, consent from DEFRA and Natural England. Um, what the main project that they're doing at the moment is basically to lock down the breeding. No one has bred this species before and wrote down how to breed it. So we are writing in the current form of paper on how to breed this species. But also we need to build up the captive population. We're literally one of the only people to keep this species. So we've kind of got to spread the captive population a bit bigger. So... We'll be looking at working with zoos on that um, just so that we can raise awareness that this is an extinct species. I think when people get a sense of loss, they want to to regain that loss. So if people know that it's an animal which is worthwhile of reintroduction, then then I think that that can help in the mission. Um, with the common lizards, so common lizards, we are breeding them really well now. Um, we've got a massive group, huge group of common lizards. And yeah, it, it would be worthwhile to look at reintroducing them to areas which they're going extinct with the habitat, you know, according to rewilding and things. So they do really well at places like NEP. Um, I think getting getting to the, the what we're talking about at hand with climate change, climate change is really opening up the door to reptiles and amphibians in Britain, which is quite refreshing when we hear about the other side, which is all of the losses and the dreadful collapse of ecosystems. Um, I think with a bit of optimism, reptiles and amphibians could fare relatively well through this. They could be one of the winners. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it depends how the climate changes. Mm. So a lot of climate research, of course, has always been, you know, this could happen, but this could also happen. We could get four degrees of warming or we could get 1.5. You know, we know that the climate is changing. We know it's getting warmer. Um, and we know that catastrophe is going to happen if we don't act, but we don't know whether that is going to be in 20 years or 80 years. It's kind of hard to, mm. you know, pinpoint when 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 it's going to happen. But for reptiles and amphibians, it all depends on what happens to the jet stream or the Gulf Stream. Basically, um, as I understand it, the warmer water, um, I think it's warmer water in the oceans, basically destabilizes the jet stream. Now, if that happens, I don't want to celebrate that happening as bad as this sounds. If that happens, it would actually kind of be good for reptiles and amphibians in Britain because um, it would mean we would get hot summers and quite cold winters, which is a good thing. So that that would be good. Other people say that the jet stream is actually going to become enhanced. So we're going to get just, um, uh, there's going to be almost no seasonal difference between summer and winter, which is, to me, that's incredibly scary because of the two months a year where it's actually sunny, you know, I'd hate to lose that. And other people say that, well, it won't matter. Everything's just going to frame shift. So summers are going to get warmer. 
but at the same time, winters are going to get warmer as well. So it's um, it's really interesting for all of those. The, the most important thing for European reptiles uh, and amphibians is the warmer summers. The warmer warmer summers allow for incubation. The adults can survive and and survive quite well. But the eggs, when they're laid, or if they're laid, just don't hatch because they need a warmer temperature. So, um, so they're always the clinch point is the warmer summer. That is what we want if we want to see more reptiles in, in the UK. But of course, this you know, I would not be celebrating reptiles doing really well if the whole biosphere had collapsed. So it can be kind of awkward trying to semantically navigate this by saying on one hand, the, the biosphere is going to collapse, which we know it's going to if, if we carry on. But on the um, other hand, probably... all hail our reptile overlords, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but, I mean, one of the most interesting things that I ever read, actually, is this idea that, I don't know how scientifically gra- grounded this is, but it's an interesting way of looking at the climate crisis, is that for millions of years, plankton in the oceans have sequestered carbon from the carbon-rich atmosphere during the Permian Carboniferous into the Triassic, you know, warm and balmy. But universally, the Earth has, has been warm, warmer than what it's been today. And what has happened is plankton have sequestered this carbon and slowly almost cooled the planet to the point where we got to the ice ages. Um, and what that has meant is that by us drilling into oil, which we know is created by plankton, and, and burning uh, coal, which was once the ancient forests of the Permian and Carboniferous, we're almost reversing those hundreds of millions of years of sequestering and basically turning the earth back in to, a, I don't want to say a tropical paradise because it gives the wrong message, but but back to that warmer stage when we had a carbon-rich atmosphere, uh, which is quite unsettling. To, to think all of that work has been undone by our actions yeah, within 200, you know, 100 years. <sighs> yeah, exactly. It's kind of it's kind of scary. It really is scary. Kinda. I think bit, one of the yeah. scariest one, one of the scariest things actually, um, which may be the downfall of, of humanity. Oh, here we which go. Which is yeah. Has been assuming that systems are linear. So George Monbiot talked a lot about this and what what he said is we assume that the climate change is like a sink. So this is George Monbiot's metaphor, not mine. And we assume that we've got a tap running. And the amount of water is greater than the amount going out through um, the plug. So the sink is gradually filling up. And what we need to do is slowly turn the tap off so that that water matches how much it goes out to the point where the sink is, is, is empty. However, the problem is, is, is systems, living systems have hysteriasis, which means that they can take a lot of stress and give the impression that they are linear until they flip and snap. So what what he's on about is, so for instance, air currents may slightly start to warm up and okay, you know, we've got this under control. They're going in a linear fashion. We can slowly start to turn carbon dioxide down so that the air systems don't become crazily, you know, undone. And we assume that they're slowly going to become more unpredictable and crazy with the amount of carbon, you know, plot it on a graph. What actually would happen is that literally in the case of just a few weeks, these systems will snap and become completely different overnight, literally. So that is the scariest thing, because for a while we've assumed that climate change is linear. It's all um, it's tied into things like uh, positive feedback loops as well, doesn't it? So it's not necessarily just a case of that one tap that's coming in. 
that one tap yeah. is, is without us meaning to, without our control turning on three or five other taps, which we don't exactly. have control over. And it just, it spirals out of control. And um, yeah. um, we, we lead to a apocalyptic wasteland where no one, no one lives or survives. A flooded yeah. bathroom, well, if you will. That's all we've got time for this week. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to end it there. Well, the, the scariest thing, I think, that is, for instance, the permafrost, which holds more carbon, three times as much mm. carbon as all the yeah. woodlands, rainforests on Earth. When that goes, we are fucked. <laughs> you know, there's no negotiating that. And going it is, yeah. I've worked yeah. with permafrost scientists and um, Lloyd always rolls his eyes because whenever I talk about positive feedback loops, I go straight to the permafrost thaw. It's, and, my, go, it's my go-to because, you know, we've warmed the planet to a point that we think it's, it's it, well, you know, we've warmed the planet and now all of these kind of ticking time bombs of methane and further carbon emissions that are locked away. And as you, as you described uh, with the planet, it's been locked away for a significant amount of time. And for that to be undone, for that to thaw, for that to melt and for that to be released into the atmosphere... Over over what could just be a decade is um, is incredibly stressful, incredibly stressful yeah. to think about. And it's actually um, interesting that we would gloss over that without talking about rewilding's approach to the permafrost. Uh, it can very quickly say that some some science, and although it's kind of scary because the the effort that it would take to roll out this sort of project across the permafrost would be unbelievable, but it's actually theorised that. Grazing herbivores, mammoths, bison, wild sheep, um, muskox, uh, all manner of different ice age herbivores actually maintain the permafrost and, and keep it from thawing because they trample and compress the, uh, the ground and they eat the vegetation, which opens the permafrost up to the freezing air and allows the permafrost to rethaw so that it stays frozen. And actually, what has been said is because these herbivores have been hunted out by people, that's opened up the grassland to the expansion of tiger forest and boreal forest. I love boreal forest, so I don't know. It's hard because, again, it's about semantics. Forests, forests are wonderful, but in this instance, they're kind of not mm. because they actually mean that the permafrost is more likely to melt because forests have um, a low albedo. So they actually absorb temperature and allow the, the permafrost to thaw. So basically, the idea is if we roll out all these different species using ones that we still have today... So domestic camels, American bison, Yakutian horses, um, all these different species, muskox we still have, um, then we can create some sort of um, massive herd of, of animals in order to um, keep, the, keep the ground frozen, literally. I think it's having access to the land to be able to, or having the right conversations with the landowners as well, to be able to actually create projects of this scale, because it's all, you know, it's all well and good. Lots of people individually wanting to be involved in rewilding, but uh, like land ownership is so skewed that access to land and access to loads of projects like this or spaces where these projects could be really good, that seems like a huge hurdle to me. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, in Russia and Canada, it's slightly different to the UK. The UK, we've got one of the highest land ownership densities, I think it is, the highest number of landowners. Whereas Canada and Russia, a lot of this is state land, so no one actually owns it. So it would be a case of convincing the government to do this. Um, and there are other parts. So in America, I love their land use system. Um, they have this amazing project on the prairies called um, the American Prairie Reserve. Um, and a really bloody clever idea, which was to take already existing nature reserves and state parks and national monuments 
and glue them together by buying up the land in between. So they link together this three million acre wilderness of, of grassland together because there's actually no sizable national park which represents the American plains, the American prairies where bison would have been by the million. And what this project aims to do is do exactly that. Um, and it's incredibly exciting. Of course, it's using land use and, and, and buying land in a way which is, which is strategic, but also gets opposition. You know, people, people were putting up signs saying, don't buffalo me, which I think is quite funny. <laughs> I think the best, the best thing that I have done, actually, was study psychology and understand why people do what they do. Um, and, for, and, and this is what I'm going straight back from Siberia and the American plains back to a bar in Leek. Getting a job at a bar is, is so good because it enables you to talk to people about, you know, these sorts of things and actually sit down and have a conversation about, about these sorts of things. When sea eagles were reintroduced to the Isle of Wight, um, something like 60% of all farmers opposed. But after they went to see presentations and talked to Tim McCreel and Roy Dennis and the amazing legends who've been running that project, I think it went up to something like over 80% in support. So it shows when you actually talk to people and you actually empathise with people, that change happens. And I think the biggest fundamental thing that, as ecologists, we've got to remember is that we are just as important as anyone else. Just because we understand living systems doesn't mean that we're more worthy of anyone else. You know, I think we have this sort of almost white saviour syndrome in ecology. Um, and I don't mean that in a necessarily, um, I don't mean that in a conscious way. I mean, I just think people sometimes think, you know, look badly towards indigenous ways of, of, of working and also not just indigenous and maybe actually harmful ways that, you know, like on Madagascar and things. Um, but we've got to sit down with people and we've got, to, we've got to talk to people because it's the only efficient way of doing it. And, you know, I'd hate to be like the Nazis who basically forced people off their land. I never and, know sorry. where you're going, Harvey, and it's, it's an absolute <laughs> delight, but I wasn't expecting that one. Do do carry on. I just T- Tell us more about the many ways in which you'd hate to be like the Nazis. <laughs> well, basically, the, the, Nazis were, the Nazis were some of the, some of the um, first rewilders, if you want to call it that way. They didn't use rewild as, as the name, um, but they basically forced um, poles out of their lands you know, their farmlands and woodlands, um, in order to create a park for you can imagine the <laughs> the um, Reich hunters to hunt bison and aurochs in, and they actually tried to recreate aurochs, and they ended up looking like some sort of a donkey, um, which is kind of quite funny. Um, and um, basically, um, I think that's the way that we should not be wild. <laughs> we should not be rewilding from a point which wants to see people, you know, forced off their land. That's the point that I was trying to get to, is not, you know, Nazis aside, we shouldn't be forcing <laughs> people off their land. Um, Absolutely. And if, you know, the, the best way of looking at that is to read about the Nazis' endeavours in rewilding and just do not do that. So, If, if there's one message so, we always preach on for what it's worth, it's don't be like wow. the Nazis. Yeah. We've taken a whole, <laughs> yeah, a whole new level here. <laughs> but on the subject of talking to people and getting stakeholders involved, landowners involved. This is a very long-winded way of joining up our usual segments. Um, <laughs> what would you say to people listening who want to help, whether that's help in rewilding or specifically contribute to reptile, amphibian, 
populations? Like, is there anything they can do yeah. on a local scale, like in their gardens or with community groups? I think the best thing to do is rewild your garden. Um, I'm not for one second going to pretend that if we all rewilded our garden, the earth would be saved. If we all rewilded our garden, something like 3% of the land surface would be better for nature, which is not enough, unfortunately. We need 10 times that, about 30%. Um, but what I am going to say is 3% is actually still quite big though on the other side and it's still part of that mission. You know, 3% is 10% if you think about it, of getting there. So that's that's a win. Rewild your garden. How do we do it? Well, um, people will often talk about ponds, bird feeders, etc. I think the best way to look at it is instead is boar, bison and moose. What I mean Just by that boring. is... Just get boring, yeah. My, uh, my six metre by three metre garden. Lovely. yeah. <laughs> I, I well, can fit one. I can fit one of those <laughs> in. Sorry, you can continue your metaphor. I know you're going somewhere much more sensible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's to, to pretend to be like a boar. So go and get a spade and just dig run random sods of earth up and throw them around the garden. And what happens is, is it kickstarts succession. So plants can then start to get a foothold, you know, in, in, in your garden. So that's the first thing to do. With, with bison, I think, um, the reason why hay meadows are biodiverse is because of herds of bison and aurochs would have once controlled the grasslands of Europe. Um, and so I think meadows are awesome. Use a native seed mix, and I don't mean a B&M seed mix. I mean, literally go and fight. There's some great companies on the internet. And harvest the hay, if you can, in a way which is um, indicative of, of herbivore grazing. So I think it's cut only once or twice a year. Um, that sort of thing. I'm not an expert in hay meadows, so you'd have to look, read online, but that's at least the bison part of it. Uh, and the elk bit comes from from waterways. So basically, I think ponds are awesome because I love reptiles and amphibians. I'd put a pond in, but then it's not just a case of leaving it. You have to maintain it. Um, and what elk do, or moose, is they are our natural um, hippopotamus of Britain. They actually clear out ponds um, in their native range and they used to live in Britain um, and allow light to reach the floor and things. So make sure a pond doesn't become too overgrown. Yes, you want lots of foliage, but don't let it become just just literally a mass of foliage. Keep it open. Um, and I think there's, that's you're onto a winner there and just let go. I think one of the biggest problems we have as a society and even in conservation is always wanting to be in control and always wanting to manage. Sometimes, honestly, and it was like when I was at Ewhurst Park, it's so refreshing to see people willing to take a deep breath and just let go and just let nature do what it wants to do. And yes, reinstate the keystones and the processes and the landscape of yesteryear. But other than that, just let nature resume. Because... The, the main saviour, the main reason why rewilding works and why it can work is crucial because of the fact that nature, if you look at the history of life on Earth, has gone through horrendous things. From the Permian mass extinction to the extinction of the dinosaurs to the Pleistocene extinctions, nature has been used to being hit hard and then rebounding with amazing diversity. And, and what... what rewilding is doing in britain let's take specifically is when we relieve land of being an agriculture what you're actually doing is you are simulating what happened at the end of 
the Ice Age when the glaciers retreated. We've got to understand till about 10,000 years ago, the majority of Britain, even where I'm sitting right now, was under tens of metres of ice. There was nothing living here. And what you're doing when you're relieving it from agriculture is the same thing. You are letting that land just boom and bust with wildlife. So I think, you know, the, the most important thing of all um, is just let, letting go. I think the biggest commonality when we talk about restoration and rewilding um, that we need to do in the face of climate change is space. And what I mean by space is we are going to see massive shifts of where species lives. We are, we are already seeing it in Britain. The British climate is moving five kilometres north each year. And with that, it's becoming the first animal which can easily move, which is insects. We are getting new species of butterfly. We've got more species of dragonfly than we ever have had um, because of migrating ones from the south that are now taking, taking root in, in, in Britain. Um, and that is fine. You know, although it, it can pose problems to species which already live here and open up threats to invasive species and disease, the biggest thing that we can do for wildlife in this age of extinction and climate change in order to save some biodiversity going into the future is give it space. We've got to give it space to be able to move, to be able to move to new areas. So when we talk about 30% of, percent of land back to nature, we don't just need to be talking about physical land and islands of land. We also need to be linking those areas up, you know, protected areas, triple SI sites, to rewilding projects so that animals can move. So, you know, I think if there's any one thing I want people to take away from this, um, it's two things, you know. In, Hang on, in terms you said if any one thing and immediately followed it with two things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, if there's any two things then people should take away, it is to let go and let nature be. Of course, we need to monitor, you know, it's got disclaimers. Um and second is space. We need to give nature space to just do what it wants to do. I think those are two very good Amazing. things to to wrap up on. I mean, I haven't asked you any of the questions I was going to ask about reptiles and amphibians because we've ended up on the most amazing chat about rewilding instead. But it's an incredibly important conversation and one that I'm very much here for. So thank you so much for taking some time out of your afternoon you. to talk rewilding and, and all sorts of uh, future methods and madness um, with us. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. Where can no people worries. get more from you? If you go onto our website, www.celticreptileandamphibian.co.uk, you can see some stuff there. If people want to directly contact me then, um, it's harvey at celticreptileandamphibian.co.uk if you want to drop me an email. Um, please no spam emails. Um, I'm going to send you some spam. Yeah, <laughs> but... But yeah, no, if anyone wants to get in, in contact with me, um, that, but yeah, and everyone have a great day and, and, and keep being environmentally conscious. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Harvey, for joining us. Really enjoyed that. No worries. And as always, if you want a little bit more from us at For What It's Earth, you can find us on social media, can't you? We're on Twitter at What Earth Pod, Instagram and Facebook at For What It's Earth Podcast. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're worth listening to. Every now and again, we drop a bit of hot content. Lay, yep, some lay some likes. opinions down. Very yeah, do a bit of like fishing. You know how it is. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, you can drop us an email as well and let us know what your one good thing is or suggest ideas or people that you'd like us to speak to in, in upcoming episodes. 
at forwhatitsearthpod yeah. at gmail.com. Or if you just want us to bring Harvey back and he can just front the whole Do show. Do I replace you with Harvey you. when you're on paternity leave? Or would every episode you be couldn't. rewilding if I did that? Oh, he's, he sounds like he's got... Full, full breadth of knowledge, to be honest. Do, I think he'd be great. Whole theories. <laughs> no, he was fantastic. I think he'd be yeah. great. Anyway, apart from that, all that's left to say is that, of course, all the opinions and views and whatnot that we've spouted with confidence in this episode are our own and not that of uh, anyone else's or our respective employers. Indeed. And with that, we'll see you see you soon for another episode of For What It's Earth. Thanks for listening. Take care. Don't be like the Nazis. <laughs> what a note to end on. Thank you.